This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Flutes and I'm Claire Southworth. Today I'm chatting to Andy Finden, one of the most recorded flute players around, who could be heard on many TV and film soundtracks. He's not only an exceptional flute player, but equally at home playing saxophone, clarinet and all sorts of other wind instruments, for example fifes, whistles, panpipes, bamboo flutes. He's the longest serving member of the Michael Nyman band, playing flutes and baritone sax. And he's worked with such superstars as Stevie Wonder, Joni Mitchell, Tony Bennett, Cilla Black, Beach Boys and Catherine Jenkins. That is an incredible lineup. He originally studied classical flute at the Royal College of Music in London, but soon diversified to become one of our best known session and recording artists. You'll have heard him many times, but not necessarily been aware of the performer. Film tracks include Mamma Mia, Evita, Cats, Phantom of the Opera. Well, enough chat from me. I think it's time to get talking to the most versatile musician I know. Hello, Andy. Hello, Claire. It's great to, great to hear you. And also, of course, we're seeing each other because we're doing this over, over we Skype. Are, we are Skyping, yeah. yeah. Now, I really don't know where to start, but because you've achieved so much, we ought to start maybe at the beginning, maybe early stages of career. You're, you're in the National Youth Orchestra. Yeah, I, I was... Well, actually, I think I met you the year I joined the National Youth Orchestra. And we were in Canterbury. We were. With horses. Do you remember? It was um, International Summer School, I remember. That's right. Yeah. I... Uh, I had an accident with my suitcase and the contents of my stomach one morning and uh, <laughs> I was sharing a room with David Mosley, who was, um, oh, we'll have to edit that, won't we? No, I, I, I was sick of my suitcase, I'm sure I've told you. But uh, I was sharing a room with David Mosley, who was principal flute of the National Youth Orchestra, and I was joining, the, about two weeks after that course, I was going along to do the piccolo. Uh, I don't think I knew it because we were booked, you were seventh or eighth flutes and you moved up to do piccolos. So it was David Mosley and, and I was playing piccolo with him. And uh, so that was a few weeks after I'd met you, I started at the National Youth Orchestra. I was learning with Norman Knight, who was the tutor. So it was most probably fixed. Because <laughs> I got in straight on piccolo and not down the end. You know. Did you enjoy so, it? Yeah, it I, it was formative, it is, and it has stayed with me and my friends, uh, and I carried on. But the year after David left, I became principal, and I met people I'm still so close to. I had a flute section with Helen Keane, Paul Davis, John Snowden, Maggie Campbell, um, and we're, we're all still friends. We all sit, work with each other and see each other. It's really... It's one of the strongest binds, and you meet someone with the MYO. It's like a secret handshake. 
it's, it's good. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. I didn't, are those, in those days, I didn't even know it existed. That's how little I knew about the flute world. Mm. Or the music world, this, I should say. My teacher was the tutor. I'm not sure I would have known about it if he hadn't said, you're doing the MYO. Well, how fantastic. So then you went on to the Royal College of Music. Who did you study yes. with there? Eddie Walker. Oh, Eddie Walker. Yeah, and uh, I, I didn't really know his background, and, and now I do. I, I wish I'd been aware of it then. He left the LSO in the 50s with a load of his principal colleagues, and they did film music, because they weren't letting them off work at the LSO to go and do the Elstree Studio and, and all the stuff those Muir Matheson films, Carry On films, or the comedy things, Eddie fixed the bands that did those. And I had no idea. He was just a, a lovely, gentle man to, to work with. And he taught me loads of lovely little tricks that he'd, he'd learned during the business. Um, oh, I, I was really pleased I learned with him. His son, Tony Walker, was yes. principal piccolo in the BBC Northern Orchestra, when it was called. And he coached my little local youth orchestra called the Stockport County Youth Orchestra. And um, so I knew Tony. Isn't that strange? Well, it was a family thing because Eddie's dad, Gordon Walker, was yes. principal flute at the LSO. I think he was possible. I'm not sure in my story whether Eddie was the principal or, or Gordon was at that time when a load of them left to go and do commercial work. But um, oh, I just wish, I wish I'd asked more questions. You didn't know. When you're 19, 20, you go to college and you're in awe of these people. And um, the, the other professors there, were, uh, John Francis was still there, Maggie learned with, with him. Uh, all, all my mates who went to Guildhall, they all had Peter Lloyd. Yeah. So it was an incredibly formative period. And, and through things like, there was a YMSO, the Young Musician Symphony Orchestra, where yeah. All the different colleges used to send people to, to get together and I met lots of people from Guildhall and the Academy. The brass tended to be Royal Academy, the Woodwind College in Guildhall, uh, the strings from anywhere you could get them because violin players didn't want to play in symphony orchestras. Mm. They all wanted to be soloists. Be soloists, yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Well what a, what a yeah. great start. Now you see so you trained as a classical flutist but were you already playing clarinet and saxophone at that time? I must have been about 14, 15, so it, it did coincide. My father is a clarinet and a sax player, and he's still working. He's only 93. Wow. Some weeks he's got more work than I have. <laughs> and um, fantastic Dixieland clarinet player. And there was obviously clarinet saxophone instruments at home. And he, I think it was my mother's suggestion that I should go out on, on dance band work with him. And obviously the flute was not an instrument you could do. He ran a band with no music. He, he it was a band leader called Joe Loss who used to send out subsidiary bands. And my dad would take a band out with three or four frontline musicians, no music, just busking, improvising. And sometimes he needed people on the gig who wouldn't play too much because they'd get in the way of the guys who knew what they were doing. Yeah. It was a, a strange way, but I stood next to some amazing musicians. 
trying to learn middle eights of jazz standards that I didn't know the beginning of. Uh, and uh, so I had to take a saxophone and a clarinet with me to do that kind of music. What an education. It, yeah, it was. I were, and sitting at dinner tables with musicians who were 50 or 60 years old, and I was 15. I went on the ships. I shared a cabin with a guy who was 30 when I was 17. He left his wife during that. The ships were quite formative. <laughs> but I was so green and, and had no idea what, what that kind of thing was about. But I was still at the college doing the flute. You know, that was what I was going to do. And yeah. symphony orchestra was what I really wanted to do. I, I quickly learned that if you've done 10 to 1 of the Dorchester the night before playing in a rock and roll band, you've got to be a bit careful trying to play Heldenleben in the morning at 10 o'clock. Very careful. <laughs> that kind of shock to the to the jaw. Yeah. Mm. And so did you feel that you were veering more towards your clarinet and saxophone playing more than flute at that point then? It's not at that point, it's still now. I, I, am, I am a flute player. I happen to play the other instruments. Yeah. It's the only way I can look at it. I've turned up at work and only been a clarinet player. Yeah. Or a sax player, and and watched other people play the flute and enjoyed their playing. I know if someone asks me to play the flute, I've got to be that. That's where my heart is. It really is. The two professors that I mentioned, Norman Knight, when I was a junior academy with him, and Eddie Walker, were both wooden flute players. Yes, they were both known as exponents of the wooden flute. I, when I started learning locally. I didn't have school lessons. My mum was, um, let's pay for lessons. It was a bit snobbish in those days. And I went to the wife of the second clarinet in the BBC Symphony. His name was Herbert New, and he used to play second to Jack Bryman when he was in the BBC. And his wife was a lady called Jean New. And when I went, it was re- I went with, a, I think, a regent flute, but she recommended that I get a wooden flute. And I got a Rudel Carp which I've still got and I love dearly. I was in a world which was changing very much in the late 60s, early 70s. The That was very unfashionable to play a wooden flute. I think I may have been the last principal of the National Youth Orchestra to play wooden. That's really interesting. Um, I did, I wasn't resistant because the minute I got a silver flute, I could tell a difference. Yes. Um, but both my professors were wooden flute professors, and I still love the wooden flute. Well, it's coming back now, of course. There I are. have had modern ones. I had a, had a Yamaha, which was was really good. But the, the thickness of the Rudel cart has got a charm. Certainly so. has. Yes, I also have a Rudel cart. Yeah, and, uh, I'm sure the our generation have. Yeah, them. and also, you now have Geoffrey Gilbert's platinum flute. Yes. Which I remember playing. He gave it to me to try out many, many, many years ago. It was a fabulous flute. It was very heavy. It, it is heavier. I, I've recently made it even heavier. I bought one of Jimmy's 18-carat um, head joints, <laughs> Miramatsu, which he had for about 20 years. And it's really very heavy now. But it's a touch wood. Mechanically, it's in tip-top condition, and it really is my favourite instrument. Yeah, Absolutely. I have platinum as well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think they're incredible. They're so versatile. 
it just goes quieter and louder. Yes. It does everything I want. It's like a car with, with stripes on it. And everything. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's something special about platinum. But it must be wonderful to play Jeffrey's old flute. Yeah, I, I met his granddaughter. She's married to a trumpet playing friend of mine. And um, I, I, I meet him only at parties. <laughs> uh, we always have a good, good cuddle and a chat about Jeffrey. Yeah. I used to teach his granddaughter. That, um, Lorna? Lorna, yeah, many, many years ago again. Good Lord. Yes, I taught her. I don't think so, but she, I taught her privately and then she went to the Royal Northern and studied there. Yeah. It's a small world. Yeah, it is. My husband, an amazing trumpet player, really good player, Russell. Uh huh. Now, your CV, going back to your CV, which I read earlier, it reads like a combination of many players' CVs. It's so diverse. So, not only performing on vast variety of instruments, but so many different venues. You've done the Olympics, Eurovision Song Contest, West End Shows, classical orchestras, big bands. It's an incredible career. The, the downside is that often you can spread yourself thin and, and not get embedded in one world. That is a plus and a minus. In my brain, I would like nothing more than to sit in a symphony orchestra with colleagues playing, learning and growing in that. And whenever I go in an orchestra, I'm on tenterhooks because this is really what I want to do. But then I'll turn up and play baritone in a, in a, in a big band or something and it, there's a joy in that. Mm. I, like, I, I did a show, the, the last show I did, I played second alto to the best lead alto in this country, dear friend. And it was like having a masterclass every night. Uh, it was really exciting. We both played the flute in it, both clarinet and both sax. And I was learning on, on all the instruments. There are things you can get off other people all the time. It's a bit lonely now. I've just spent today doing something which I, five years ago I would have been down, down in a studio. Well, they're all closing anyway. Um, I've been doing a session for an old a composer I used to work for. He's not old, he's an old friend, George Fenton. Yeah. And just having the music here and recording it at home and sending it off to, to, to the orchestrator, that, that's, I want to be with people and it's getting a bit lonely. Well, that's modern technology that you can record it, your bit at home and send it off. That's a bit of a shame, isn't it? It, it is. I, I just said to Julia, I, I bought, it's the same money, and I haven't got a drive there or get on the tube, but I'd love to stay and have a pint afterwards with the lads, and that's missing Yeah, yeah. An awful lot. Now, there are so many players who would love to have even just a small part of your career. I mean, I often am hearing uh, young players say they just want to be a session musician. How, how did you get into studio work, and how could someone get into session work themselves? At college, always look out for the uh, the writers, the people who we regard are cleverer than us. Um, if they have a lucky break, they'll turn up and they may want a, a, a crutch, a happy face they knew from college with them. And, and that did happen. My contemporaries at college 
so got a writing gig or something, they went to the, the normal fixer and said, do you mind if, if we try a flute player that I, I worked with at college? And, and then you're lucky enough, you're exposed to these other people. Um, it, lucky. And it can be another, it, there can be a gap of two years in between getting one and the second gig. Yeah. Because that fixer has remembered, oh, there was that kid that turned up and did that for that composer. Let's try him on this other thing. And it, it grows. And, and up from this end of the business, at our age, I see young compo- young composers come in, and I may work for them a couple of times. Then they'll bring in people they were at college with, they're more comfortable with, and, and that's how it grows. And, and I respect that enormously. So it's so networking, it, it, isn't it? It is. It is a lot of networking. Yeah. I'm not sure there's anything you can physically do. You can't send out a CV. Th- those uh, both West End and session fixers have CVs coming in more than. they're just overcome with them they don't know how to cope with that it's too much so the CVs are often not read Andy let's move on to some of the wonderful groups you've been in you've been well two of the very successful ones are the Michael Nyman band and the Home Service can you tell us a bit about those I'll add a third to that because three years ago I joined the medieval prog rock band Griffin yeah, and that, that, that's that's it's like I'm amazed that's come my way. Um, the Michael Nyman thing. I think we knew each other at the National Theatre. So when I left college, the first term I'd left, I was lucky enough to go into the National Theatre. I think I was with the saxophone quartet, and we went in and started working there. And at the same time, for two or three years, because there were different theatres, Michael had a band there called the Campiella Band an outdoor medieval Capiella show. And um, the guys were basically early music, but thought they'd try it on saxophones. <laughs> and they updated, instead of shawms and sack butts, they played trombones and, and saxophones. And uh, it kind of gave Michael the idea of doing the band. A few years later, in the early 80s, it's one of these things, how do you get sessions? A friend of mine decked a session for Michael and he sent me as his dep. And I remember the piece, it was one of the Purcell pieces that Michael was orchestrating for the draftsman's contract, an eye for an optical theory. I can remember the, the, the scene in the studio. He said, what's that in your ca- You've got a flute and a piccolo. Do you mind trying this other number on piccolo? And I, so unfortunately, my friend, didn't do many of the gigs after that because he didn't play the piccolo. Yeah. He played the saxophone. I did both, and that's how, how it happened, and guilt to this day. But there's often nothing you can do. You're not, I'm not going to turn around and turn down the offer of something. He doesn't want the other person. This is how harshness in our business happens, and it can be deeply hurtful and unpleasant. It certainly can. Um, we all know. We've all suffered the experiences. Yes. Uh, it's happened to me and it happened to this guy the composer wanted someone else so started working with him and created this chair which was baritone sax and piccolo and um, still to this day I've taken a lot of his music and worked it for flutes because he he was at the academy I I wish I could remember the name he wrote a, a flute sonata 
a solo flute piece, which is not his normal repetitive style in the 60s. And, and I, I've recorded that as well. And it's nothing like his, his other music. But I've taken a lot of his repetitive music and, and done it for the flute as well. So, um, but it's great fun to play in the band. How did you find changing from baritone sax to piccolo? Seems a bit of a bit of a leap. Often the extremes are easier. Uh, playing when when a clarinet player picks up a soprano sax, it may look like the same animal, but it ain't the same animal. And they're very close, but the double that's a harder double than the two extremes of a piccolo and a saxophone. Mm. Uh, you're using completely different parts of your body. Uh, touring with, with Michael is, is very tiring. He's obviously having a good time. There's drink, there's food. That's the challenge, to play his music after you've been getting up 4.30 in the morning, getting on an aeroplane, doing the bus. The bus is late. You run into the gig, try and eat something, have a drink, and then you've got to perform. That's the physical side. Your, your embouchure should take care of itself at that stage. I'd be very careful, as I said in an earlier segment, if I played the night before on a saxophone, the flute is going to take a little bit to come back. Putting a piece of wood, or in my case plastic, so I do use synthetic reeds, on your lower lip is not going to improve your flute playing. No. It can't. You're desensitising a bit of it. Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. Tricky. Yeah. But at the same time as, as the nylon band, a few years later, I did join the Home Service, which was once again National Theatre. And other, they were in the Cottesloe, we were working in the Olivier, saw the guys in the bar, made friends. They needed a third wind. The, the, the Home Service was originally brass-led, just trumpet and trombone. They decided they wanted to expand, bring in a reed, versatility. Mm. So... Um, I was lucky enough to work with them, and that's still still ticking along. It's good. At the same time, though, earlier band was Griffin, and I remember watching. Remember when we watched Blue Peter and then turn over to watch Magpie because it was the commercial channel. And I remember those days, yes. <laughs> um, and there was a lady called Sue Stranks, who was another draw rather than Valerie Singleton, uh, and I saw this band on there. And it was a bassoon-led rock band with long hair and, and raggy clothes and a guy playing the recorder. But I, I couldn't take my eyes off this guy playing the bassoon in a rock and roll band. And I, I've, I met them all in later years. I've worked with Richard Harvey, the recorder player. And about four years ago, Richard left and they wanted a replacement. I couldn't believe the phone call. The guitar player is the same guy as in home service. So he was the link. Everything's yeah. circular, cyclical. Everything joins up and yeah. ends up coming out the same end. So I'm now in a band with Graham Taylor, the guitar player, another band, home service and Griffin. Now I had to take the place of Richard Harvey, who's a virtuoso recorder player. Um, his Vivaldi's are, they're proper. That's not what I do. I can't do it. So I brought to it tricks, little little things that head joints that will recreate the recorder on a flute. I can use my flute yeah. technique, but play it like a recorder. Yeah. And guys are making these head joints. Uh, Chris Bell has got incredible ones. 
there's Native American head joint, which I'm involved in making into a, a flute head joint. And all these tricks, they go into sessions because if a guy, if they want to write something and it's in the wrong key for your whistle or, or your your Native American flute, you have to stop, stop the tape, work out which other ones go. These head joints let you play grammatically on your flute. And that, I've been using them today on this gig because the, the, the old G flat and C natural within the same piece of music is, is not natural to a lot of these ethnic instruments. Mm. So um, I, I really, and they're beautiful sounds. So in Griffin in particular, I, I'm bringing this instrument and, and it, it really releases something I can do. It's really good. As well as being able to play the proper flute in it. It's yeah, cool. absolutely. And I suppose you've played an awful lot of the ethnic instruments in your West End musicals. Yeah, various ones. Bombay Dreams, uh, that must have been early 2000s. It was obviously Indian flutes, a lot of bass flute. Uh, A.R. and the composer, uh, brought it to Lloyd Webber and uh, it was great working with him. The Far Pavilions, another Indian one. There was the Irish one, um, Beautiful Game, which uh, its success was kind of marred by the Good Friday Agreement because it, it, peace broke out wonderfully, but it didn't do the business of the show any good. Uh, Lion King, I've been, uh, I did yes. six months there, lots of ethnic instruments in there. Oh, Lord of the Rings wonderful show mixture of A.R. Rahman was involved again with an Indian influence and some Scandinavian musicians wrote some, some of the score but it's great going into a show where you, you can bring to it a role of flutes and in the Far Pavilions the composer actually walked through my role of flutes once oh. the role you buy from he was going to talk to a percussion player and there was this enormous crunching sound. Oh, no. That was my flutes gone. <laughs> oh, my liquids were some damage. Oh. The, the roles, uh, you, you buy all the flutes in different keys. So just back to Southall, buy another role and turn up. They paid for it. But the composer was forever embarrassed. It was a brilliant moment. <laughs> a ma magical moments in musical theatre. Absolutely. Mm. Now, another area of music you've got very involved in, you've been working very closely with the composer Jeff Eels who's written an enormous amount of music for flute, which I don't think people really know about. And we're, we've, yeah. we've now had them published through Astute Music, and you've recorded them, or a lot of them, haven't you? Yeah. Tell us a bit well, about that. Pigeonholing in our business is, like I was referring, you spread yourself thin, lots of different things. A lot of people need to know what you do, and therefore they invent a label. Uh, they call me a doubler. Some people call me a flute player, but not a doubler, or, or you're just a baritone sax player. Jeff has, has, is one of the most amazing jazz pianists. He's also a doctor of music from Cardiff University with a comp composition degree. He knows his onions. We, we played through La Mel Noir together, and he's picking up bits that, that other people wouldn't notice. He, he's, he's so broad. So therefore, when he chose to write a classical flute album, inevitably people are saying, this is jazz, it must be jazz. There are obviously jazz influences. But he's been frustrated that, that 
and, and I think because he recorded it with me, who's known as a, a maverick, not not a normal <laughs> flute player, it's once again kind of removed it. But you and I and Paul recorded with, with Andy Scott, and and we legitted Andy's music. Yes, it, it's it's very very difficult because people can't see that broadly into music. But you know, people like, what's your favourite music? I listen to anything. I've just become absolutely engrossed in the music of the golden age, the songwriters, the pop songwriters of the 1600s. Yep. I'm making a record with a, with a friend. Uh, this friend of mine orchestrated Guys and Dolls in 1981 and has been involved in film music. He, he's written the, uh, the Premier League music for TV. We're working together playing these songs and reproducing them as modern songs because they're so strong. You can't have barriers. Oh, it sounds very trendy, did it? Break down barriers in music. But it's got to happen. It's got to be. Now, listen, where, where, what's, what is the CD that you've recorded um, Jeff's music on? What's the CD called? The Dancing Flute. Okay. It's on, it's on Nimbus, The Dancing Flute. Okay. And uh, I think we did 11 or 12 tracks. As you say, he wrote some more. He's unstoppable. When you're preparing to record a CD and, and a guy's sending in the post, folded up bits of music because he couldn't work his scanner. <laughs> and and I, I kind of learnt a lot of the flute parts by putting them into Sibelius so that I could read them. Yes. Uh, have you, people must have experienced that. You look at something in someone's handwriting, when you straighten it out on Sibelius and make it, you, you've kind of half practised it. You become familiar with it. What I have learned in later years is, is that practice, uh, I wish I'd done an awful lot more and you can never have enough. It's thrilling to practice. I've, re I've recently fallen into a, a little group where I've had the opportunity to record the Prokofiev, the Poulenc, standard repertoire. It's a wonderful lady who, who does salon concerts but wants to have, have a material to sell and, and yes. we've had a group. Once again, the pianist in that, I met him when he was the conductor of Starlight Express and Cats. But he happened to study at the Royal Northern. You may have known him. Simon Lee? Yes, yes. The name. I know well, the name. He, he, he's, he's an expert on Prokofiev. He happens to conduct Lloyd Webber shows and arrange and orchestrate for him. Yeah. But, but you take the man out of the pigeonhole and he becomes an eagle. Oh, I made that up, you know, that sounds brilliant, <laughs> I'll tell him that. But rehearsing the Prokofiev flute sonata with a pianist who has got such a broad aspect is, is like doing La Mel Noire with Jeff. It's interesting how almost everything that we do creates sort of ripples that, yes. that sort of build and build and at some point in the future they reach out to somebody else and then you get another connection. Yes. Because that's all. That's basically what you've been talking about through all the, through this chat of ours is that through connections and, and and meetings you've created more work and new projects, and it, that's how your career has sort of gone on. Technology has changed the way, as I referred earlier, studios are closing. I have been forced, enjoyed it, learning technology. I mean, I'm talking to you on this iPad. This is my music studio. I use a software, I actually was Luke Trevins. 
he introduced me to the, this wonderful software, Aurea, and it's a professional recording suite. And I'm using that on this iPad, and I've become addicted to recording. I do an awful lot of um, commercial library music, where it's music which isn't written specifically for TV shows or films, but people can take them off the digital shelf. And you do metadata, you work out words which attract things. Obviously, flute will attract somebody to a certain kind of music and you try and second guess what people might want to do. And it's become, every minute I've got, I'm enjoying putting stuff together. And um, I've just done a massive Welsh project of 94 Welsh songs and themes. And I found an amazing soprano. She's a 22 year old, she, she's at the Royal Academy, she's just left, just got a job in Les Mis actually. But having recording her and playing with her, um, we, we put this album together, it's amazing. And what's so, that album called then? Land of Song, I do believe. It's going out on the Scoring House label, which is um, a very big library company. But if someone hopefully, I think there's a big market in South America. The Patagonians will go mad for it. We were discussing who my teachers were uh, earlier, and, and you know, influential teachers can come from any direction. Uh, through through working with a soprano, uh, we do a trio thing, the, the same group I recorded the Prokofiev with. Um, I met a singing coach, Manuela Ochakovsky, who's based in the Netherlands. And she comes over, and while the singer, our singer, was having a lesson, she, she invites other people in. And I had a lesson, it was, it was on syrinx, because I was going to play syrinx at the next gig. And having someone who doesn't do what you do, trying to look at you and work out what you're doing, and obviously the techniques that a singer uses, it's one, one of the favorite a favourite musician, if I had to name one, someone who, who has got every style that, that I... Uh, Karen Carpenter. Yes. Way her voice, if someone wants to play a legato phrase, the slow movement of the prologue, go and listen to Karen Carpenter sing and her breath control, what she's doing. That That's top, top of the range interpretation. So having a vocal coach, looking at the way I was playing Syrinx, telling me how to stand, where to breathe from, where to look over the music stand, how to deliver your performance. I've been, I've been to a lot of concerts and I've seen some incredibly talented people who aren't communicating, selling, throwing what you can do at the audience. It, it, it's something we take for granted and hope it'll be all right. But I think it's part of the art. A, a, another really influential lesson I had was off John Hart. And I was in a saxophone quartet with John in the 70s. Uh, uh, but when I had to go to, oh, I went to the AFM in, um, in New York to play. It was a bag of nerves. I needed a lesson. And I went to John because I knew he can walk on stage and, and just deliver things. And once again, he showed me how to walk onto the stage, how to breathe before I did. And these were all things I thought I was doing. And I, I think I may have been half doing it. But I really needed the help that him and Manuela can give you. You also learn by sitting next to people. 
as I said, you do a West End show with somebody and you grab what they can do and start. If, if they can do what you can't do, watch how they're doing it and learn. Yeah, that's in- incredibly important information. And I think anyone who gets the chance to go and sit in on vocal lessons, especially if anyone's mm. at a conservatoire level now, you can go yeah. and listen to all sorts of lessons. And that's how you learn. You learn by listening, definitely. I don't think that was there when we were in college. You went and had your lessons. You didn't involve yourselves in other people. Not really, no. No. Really broad, it's good. Well, it's all wonderful, Andy. Now, the only things I should maybe ask you are, have you got any other plans for the future that you haven't done before? Or what have you got lined up this year or next year? Uh, Yeah. Well trying to promote Griffin into a different world. I joined as they were making their first album in 41 years. Uh, Richard had left and they they were desperate to make a a record. And I didn't have any uh, material on that. We're now putting together our second new record and I've written two and co-written a third. So the writing side of things is really exciting. As I, as I mentioned, this library music, you, you're writing into a formula uh, and what people want. I, I get briefs to write sad music, happy music, and obviously the flute is really helpful in that. Mm. And so writing has become more, more important to me. Uh, I've, I've got, kind of can't talk about secret project, which if it, if it does happen, will lead in a different direction, but we're working on also the design of the head joints uh, working on the Native American head joint with a company we're hoping to market that and other products um, I might give a plug a, a red kite flutes okay. and we made a philharmonic head joint because the creator of the flutes her, her late husband was called Phil and so we've incorporated that into the name but they're, they're beautiful handcrafted head joints which turn your flute into a Native American flute. Oh, wonderful. It sounds like you've got fingers in many pies and you're very, very busy. Do you have free time? Have you got hobbies? Uh, no, I, I don't. I, I must admit, well, dog walking. Uh, um, well, as you know, we, we, um, we do take them out a lot. That, my mind is, no. I'm not as commercially busy as I was. I've accepted that. I am not doing a West End show. The last one I did was ended in January, the wonderful 42nd Street. I think it was one of the best ones I've done and a great one. If it's the last one, that's great. I've been into the West End depping. Uh, I dep on Wicked, which I, I used to do. I did a year of it and then moved on. It's lovely to go back and see people. Socially, it's great going to see people. But I'm not going to the West End every night like I used to. As I say, studios are closing. Angel Studios is closing at Christmas. Oh. About 70% of the work I've done this year has been there. Mm. That's a bit of a worry. Fifteen guys made redundant, the engineers. So now I sit at home and, and I've, I'm thinking of projects all the time. Now it's a bit addictive. We have got a lovely property up in the Lake District. And I do go with the grandchildren three boys we've got a canoe and July was scorching up there it was beautiful we were swimming in the lake um, I'm not a mountaineer my wife is and the dog is 
but um, both of us boys climb as well, but I don't climb. But I sit and watch from afar with a glass of Prosecco. Yeah. So um, don't, that, that's where I go to get away. Sounds great. Well, I must say, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to hear about all the things you've done. Um, I think we should have another chat it next year and and see how your new projects are coming along mm. and and thanks so much Andy for giving us all this time and telling us about everything it's been absolutely wonderful it's been really nice to talk to you after 50 45 years that we, since we met day. yeah absolutely it doesn't feel that long ago it's just part of what we did isn't it yeah so you're as young as you feel Andy <laughs> Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.